This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 472 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on the show Matt Domjancic. Now, Matt is an Air Force veteran, a powerlifter, former football player, strength and conditioning coach, and also spent a full career in law enforcement. So we discuss a host of topics from training a tactical athlete all the way through to peer support and mental health and everything in between. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of some of the greatest minds on earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Matt Domjancic. Enjoy. Matt, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. It's an honor. I, I appreciate you having me. Now, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am in uh, Manhattan Beach, California. Uh, it's called the South Bay of Los Angeles. Beautiful little beach community. 
Brilliant. Okay, so I love to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born, and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. I was born in New Brighton, Pennsylvania, which is outside of Pittsburgh. <clears throat> it's Beaver County, Pennsylvania. It's known for football, like Joe Namath, Mike Dicka, Ty Law, uh, on down the line, Tony Dorsett, tons of famous football players. So I was born there. My parents are both from the Pittsburgh area. Um, spent most of my childhood in Ohio, and then in ninth grade, moved back to the Pittsburgh area. I have three sisters. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, and my dad was an electrical engineer. Brilliant. All right. Well, I know that you, you know, that sport was a big part of your life. So tell me about your kind of childhood sports at the school age. Um, football, baseball, basketball, soccer, up until I, I cried when the soccer coach said I couldn't miss practices anymore because of football. So I gave up soccer and stuck to football, uh, baseball, basketball basketball um super competitive area northeast ohio also like western pa super competitive the youth sports were psychotic um hartville uniontown ohio lake blue streaks um i had a father that coached me and every sport and coached me in the backyard and took me to the batting cages and was so involved with my life and when we weren't playing sports we were shooting and hunting together and taking my buddy shooting and hunting so, uh, yeah, sports was my jam since I was little. And then in sixth grade, my dad bought me ankle weights, a jump rope, a Walkman, and a Marine Corps Jody tape and an Army Ranger Jody tape. And so in sixth grade, I got into skipping rope at night, going for a run around the neighborhood with the ankle weights, doing push-ups and sit-ups. And then in seventh grade, he asked the high school football coaches if I could uh, lift with them and what kind of weight set he should get for me at home. So by seventh grade, I had my own weight room at home, basically, and um, was addicted to lifting and nutrition uh, and already taking supplements back then. So early on, got addicted to the nutrition and the lifting and the exercise and sports was pretty much my life all through, all through college and then even after college because I continued coaching. And to this day, even though I'm not officially coaching, um, I've been at a sports performance facility where I have been a coach and a sports psychology consultant for a lot of college pro Olympic athletes. And every day I get to train around college pro and Olympic athletes. So huge part of my life sports. Beautiful. Now, what about the uh, career side? What were you dreaming of becoming? I thought growing up that I wanted to be a pilot. So I wanted to be a military pilot. And then after that, I wanted to be in the FBI and make a SWAT team, even though I had no idea what that was in reality, you know, just influence of adults saying things and TV and movies, the FBI were the real badasses and the ninjas and good at shooting or even other federal agents. You know, you grow up seeing all these movies where the federal agents are, the ones that are out in the streets getting after it. So I thought I wanted to be a federal agent. So what was the first thing that you found yourself in when you graduated high school? Uh, two weeks after high school graduation, I was in boot camp for the United States Air Force Academy. So didn't get to have that senior summer of partying, got my mullet shaved off and was in boot camp. And, so. <laughs> and with, with that childhood, you know, the, the sports and, and the weightlifting, how did that serve you as far as boot camp? You know, what's funny is you, anybody that's been to a service academy, super rigorous academically, like there are people that 
you know, I was in a squad of 20 in boot camp, and I think three or four people had perfect SAT scores because they asked questions like that. And then me and the other football player obviously had the lowest SAT scores and get ripped on for it. Um, but the thing is, is sports, hey, you get yelled at. You know how to deal with injuries, with losses, with adversity. You know how to stand shoulder to shoulder, even if you don't see eye to eye with everyone. Um, you know how to take orders. You know how to give orders. You, but there's so many lessons you learn in sports um, that there's kids at these service academies when the pressure's on, whether it's boot camp, your freshman year, seer school, they're cracking. And jocks are, we're just kind of laughing and blowing it off. Our high school coaches treated us, you know, like this. No big deal. Drive on. Don't take it personal. And do what you got to do. Prioritize whatever you have to do to stay here and not get kicked out. And then some people who are brilliant, book smart, and intellectually can't handle the heat um, and the different type of stressors. And it distracts them from being high functioning. So sports and lifting or any type of competitive sport or exercise, like somebody that's a dedicated runner or a triathlete or a swimmer, they're, they're learning lessons too. If you have something in life that you are passionate about, disciplined and consistent, it's going to give you a ton of self-confidence, self-esteem and resiliency. Well, talking about resiliency, there's a lot of, you know, when I first came to America, there was a lot of, a lot of people I met that weren't really in shape anymore. And they, talked a lot about injuries in high school and or college, you know, when they were playing probably a single sport over and over again. How were you with injuries? And, and if you were more resilient, do you uh, put that down to being a multi-sport athlete? <laughs> I'm injury prone. And part of it might be overtraining. So uh, some of the greatest periods of growth in my life are from having super gnarly sports injuries because if you prevent me from working out or competing, like I didn't know what depression was, but I'm sure that's, you know, what it was periods of severe depression. But um, yeah, I had a ton of injuries. Eighth grade, I pulled a piece of my left hip bone off. Ninth grade, I where my hamstring attaches to the bone is an ischial tibial that was fractured, put me in a body cast. Um, my senior year, I fractured my back, broke my hand and broke my ankle and still managed to play in the games because I needed to, to get a scholarship. Um, in college, I ripped the medial head of my calf in half. They didn't think I'd ever run again. And that was a big come to Jesus conversion where I went from like a habitual Christian to how do you really give your life to God? Um, so I have had tons and tons of sports injuries and then, in, you know, injuries that led to the end of my police career, which I love. So um, and part of that might just be overtraining. A lot of them could have been overtraining or just not having much of a limiter and being 110% all the time. Uh, when I was younger, maybe not, not paying attention as much to rest, recovery, relaxation. Um, but what each of those injuries taught me was, I don't care what the doctors say, I'm coming back. Like, I love it so much. I'm going to find a way to overcome. Like, you should never squat again. Well, no, I'm going to still squat. You should, you're never going to play football again. No, I came back. You're never going to do this or that. So injuries taught me how to fight through pain, adversity, depression, and um, just challenges. Don't let, don't let people hold you back. Don't let things hold you back and grow through them. 
Now, obviously, there's no regrets of those injuries because, you know, again, you clearly pulled some positive things out of it. From a coach's point of view, though, if you could coach, you know, uh, an eighth grade Matt again or a sixth grade Matt, what would you do differently with that athlete? Train smarter, not harder. So, so many people even today think that if a workout makes you throw up and your hands bleed and you're sore for three days, that's a good thing. Um, and that's not the case. That's like taking your car out and, you know, driving at 120 miles per hour for three hours straight, like you're going to overheat the engine. Um, I would have, you know what, I can't really fault the eighth grade Matt because, you know, I had high school, I was lifting with the high school football coaches who did a program called bigger, stronger, faster. And that's the best there probably was at the time. Um, and then you read muscle magazines and you buy Arnold's encyclopedia of bodybuilding and you buy the whatever books and magazines there are and you mix together three or four workouts. If, if this is good, doing all three of them is better. So I think I would just try to train smarter, not harder and do more uh, re active recovery type stuff, which was not big in the eighties the or nineties. So. No. Well, when we, we both grew up in the same era. I wasn't um, lifting probably the same intensity you were. My route was more martial arts. But um, I think that what we're seeing now in, in the strength and conditioning world and in the combat world too is much more of that less is more philosophy. And I think that applies to police and fire as well. Like Now we're starting to understand the true value of recovery. This is the platform we need to look at the shifts and, and how much rest and recovery we give in our responders. Yeah. Yeah. Performance is more than just doing the fun alpha male meathead thoroughbred balls to the wall stuff. Performance is much bigger picture than that. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned about being an Air Force boot camp. So walk me through. We, did you ever find yourself in a cockpit? No. So I broke my freshman year. They put all the men in a boxing class and the football players were bigger than everybody else. So they put all the football players in the same gym classes Another linebacker broke my eardrum with a nice hook that compressed air between the glove and the, the headpiece. So I have tinnitus to this day and I couldn't Valsalva. So I didn't think I was going to be pilot qualified. And if you start your junior year at the service academies, at least at that time, then you owed them five years of military service. So you could leave before you started class your junior year. Um, and it was a super mega hard decision because you make really good friends. When you go through boot camp or a freshman year at a military school, uh, I was the last class to go through SEER school, survival, evasion, resistance, escape, so, sort of like prisoner of war training. You go through experiences like that at 18, 19 years old, like those are your brothers for life, brothers and sisters. Like other people are drinking and partying and having a taste of freedom and you're like locking it down and have every minute of your day consumed with responsibility and accountability. So super hard decision. Um, but uh, Harvard, Cornell and Colgate all flew me out and offered me, you know, football scholarships. They didn't give full rides at those schools, but really good financial aid packages. I really didn't like any of those schools. Um, they were too many, just, it was different. Yeah, totally different than where I grew up. Pretty conservative areas, uh, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Air Force Academy. You know, a lot of rich kids, a lot of drugs and things I saw, you know, my trips. But Colgate was in the middle of nowhere. Beautiful, if you've ever seen the campus. Um, and there were a bunch of guys from Pittsburgh, including somebody I played high school football against. So 
I felt most comfortable and I, I transferred to Colgate University and finished my undergrad and my football career there. Brilliant. And then what what uh, was the next step from there? So you, you wanted to be in the Air Force, you want to be a pilot, obviously, like a lot of people, when that's taken away from you, it kind of leaves you in this kind of barren desert, of what am I going to do next? So after you saw the football career through, where did you find yourself going? I met a retired Coast Guard officer and federal agent who was hanging out at Colgate and was, took a Shakespeare class with me. And the guy was probably in his 50s or 60s, I forget. And I told him I wanted to be a federal agent, so I was going to go to law school because that's what my dad and other people said, like, go to law school. That's your ticket into the FBI. And he was, he was a lawyer. And he was like, do you want to be a glorified librarian for three years? You're going to be miserable if you really don't want to be a lawyer. He said, the next big thing is forensic science. And I had never heard of it. This is long before CSI or movies were doing like major crime scene stuff. At the time, there was two colleges, John Jay and New York City and University of New Haven in Connecticut, where Dr. Henry Lee was. Um, he used to be on TV shows all the time. He did the John Benet Ramsey case, the O.J. Simpson trial. Um, so I ended up going to get a master's in forensic science, thinking that would be a foot in the door for the feds. Brilliant. And lead me through that then. Um, I still miss football. And I thought I would try to train uh, for a free agency, which wasn't as big back then. So I contacted Yale, which was, you know, in the same area as UNH. And the coaches, um, Steve Plisk, who was well known at the time, and Russ DeRosa, who's, I think, one of the best strength coaches in the country, in my personal opinion, he's at BC now. Um, I was there for two weeks. They let me work out and I came in one day and they're like, hey, man, do you want a job? I'm like, what do you mean? Like, you want to be a strength coach? And for people out there, dude, it's really hard to get strength coaching jobs, especially D1 schools, especially under a guy like Steve Pliss that, you know, even before he was famous, we had Mike Boyle, Charles Poliquin. Uh, all these famous strength coaches were always at Yale for seminars or hanging out with Plisk. And I got pulled into that fold without even trying just because of my love for strength conditioning. Um, and so the whole time I was in forensics grad school, I was also a strength coach at Yale. And eventually got into sports ministry at Yale with the athletes. Um, and a big turning point career-wise was over the summer, you had to do so many hours of an internship. And, and students would go to a crime lab and just do paperwork. I went to a contract training facility. I was scheduled to go to Blackwater Lodge, which a lot of people have probably heard about, um, run by Navy SEALs. And I was just going to observe their training, write papers on firearms ballistics, and then get my internship signed off. But the week before I was to report to Blackwater Lodge, I visited this place called Storm Mountain Training Center in West Virginia, ex-Army Special Forces guy, DC SWAT. And he, he wasn't as receptive in emails about the internship, but he said I could swing by. So I show up and he's doing an aerosol course, fast roping, rappelling, swinging in the windows and shooting sim and all this stuff. And I show up to observe and he's like, oh, college boy, I didn't think you would show up. And he's like, grab your gear, let's go. I said, I don't have gear to do this stuff. I thought I was observing. He's like, dude, you're not going to be some chicken shit and just watch. You're going to man up and do this. So, okay. So he gives me the gear and a gun and I go through this five day, you know, rappelling and fast roping course. And um, long story short, he found out that I was going to Blackwater Lodge for the summer. And he said, do you want to hold clipboards for squids or you want to stay here and train like a man? <laughs> I'm like, 
uh, where am I going to live? And he's like, I got a, you know, a bunk room under the gun store. You can eat, eat meals with the family and you're going to train whatever team or cops or military people come in, whoever doesn't have a partner, you'll, you'll just, you'll be, a, you'll be a fill in. So you're going to train. Okay. So for three months, I was on a mountain in West Virginia doing combat handguns, sniper, CQB, HRP, rappelling, um, carbine, shotgun, you name it, force on force, ammunition training all the time. And I got exposed to tons of law enforcement and tons of enlisted military guys. And quite frankly, I got along with the enlisted military guys and the, the cops more than I did the few federal agents that came through. Like they were not in like gung ho about the shooting or fighting and PT just had kind of a di different uh, attitude as well. There was, you know, some federal agents in my forensics classes that I just, it was different. I just, you know, you just end up learning that the feds are not what they appear to be in the movies. Now there's tons of federal agents I'm friends with and tons of feds that have done way more police work than me. But like overall, a lot of the federal jobs might be more like corporate America doing investigations in a cubicle more than on the street. So that internship at Storm Mountain was a big turning point for me and kind of not, not wanting to be a federal agent, which was like a huge blow and then trying to reevaluate my life. Um, and so, so yeah, yeah so, go ahead. So, so I was going to say, so walk me through that because I mean, I'm assuming that law enforcement came next, but after what well, basically, you know, we know in the first responder um, arena would have been high level special operations training in law enforcement. What was the actual training and boot camp like for you? Because that must have seemed quite mundane compared to the three months you spent doing <laughs> that. You know, eventually, so I make it into law enforcement. And I have already trained and continue to train at Storm Mountain with Rod Ryan. Like every chance I get, go there running and gunning. I had also done three instructor courses with Tony Blower. Do you know who Tony Blower is? Yeah, I had Tony on the show. Oh, okay. Tony Blower has been a mentor of mine going back 25 years. So while I'm in grad school, because of Storm Mountain and I was certified as a firearms instructor through them, I weaseled my way into spear instructor and cement friendly ground fighting instructor development at Smith and Wesson Academy. So two full weeks where I skipped grad school and I'm training with Tony. Then Tony invited me to the first PDR in Montreal, personal defense readiness. And I'm off and running. I was training in New York City with a guy named Vinny Giordano. Like he makes documentary films on different mixed martial arts and the, you know, from different countries. He was an amazing man and mentor, and I was training with Roger Denton and some Brazilian guy in Connecticut. So before I go to the police academy, I'm training with Tony Blower, special forces guys, and all kinds of what I consider very legitimate mixed martial artists before MMA was super cool. Um, and I was a strength and conditioning coach with one of the greatest strength coaches at the time as far as like research and presenting and Steve Pliss. So you go to a police academy in Connecticut the tactics were archaic. The driving was terrible. They're shooting Weaver, if you're familiar with Weaver, stomp and drag. Like, oh, my God, it was horrible. The, I mean, I love the cops in Connecticut, but the training was so bad. And, of course, PT was bad. Like, whatever instructor showed up for the day, it was about them showing off what they were good at. If they were good at running, they're going to run you into the ground until somebody's puking and falling out. If they like doing body weight stuff, there was no rhyme, reason, science, or progression. Um, so, 
yeah, having all that training before you go to, to, to an academy. And I had already gone to Air Force Colgate and had a master. So academically, a police academy is not difficult. Um, the hardest thing was that one was in the barracks. And there's a lot of people that hadn't been away from home. So there's a lot of drama for people that hadn't been in the military or left home. And just kind of, you've already been through military school. You're going through that whole head game thing again, but you're not freaking out. You're just like, oh, just put up with it and get through it. But I will say the Connecticut Police Academy, making you live in the barracks and running more like a paramilitary organization with PT standards that you had to pass every month or you were fired. I give them credit that it was demanding physically. And if you failed something, you were fired. It was a higher standard than a lot of police academies as far as the effort you had to put in, if that makes sense. Well, it does. And it's something I talk about quite a bit. Um, of course, an annual standard needs to be pertinent to the job, you know, so it can't be just because someone can, you know, pull 600, that should be the standard. It should be related to the tasks that we do. But I've always said that it's insanity. And, you know, you ask lifeguards, SEALs, PJs, the same question, and they're blown away that we don't. But I'm, I, blows me away that we don't have annual standards in our professions, you know, because you're just saying, hey, that minimal bar that we set at the front door, we just want you to hold that. That's it. You want to go over and above, which you should knock yourself out, but just don't fall below this line. So yes. how was that um, academy able to hold the line when so many others struggle doing that? Well, this is 20 years ago. So I, I don't know. But but when you get out, even in, when you got out, there was no standards. And it's a problem because just like you said, think about this. If you didn't know this, because I was dear friends with a, a professional musician, you know, there are professional musicians in the military. Like they go to grad school for music and they try out to make a band in the military. They're never going to deploy. And there's a lot of other non-combatants in the military that are never going to deploy but even the military bands have to PT every day and pass the PT test that everybody else does. So if people in the military that are in the band, literally, not even kidding, they're in the marching band, have to pass a PT test, they're never going to deploy. Why do cops and firemen not have to pass an annual PT test? That's a great, great point. A friend of mine actually is in the Navy choir. She, I did a stunt show with her years ago. Um, so that's an interesting perspective. I've never thought of it that way. But I mean, the lifeguards were another one. I did that for many years. You know, if you can't pass the the swim test they give every year, then they're not going to let you jump in the water and save people. So it's it is crazy, and it's, sometimes it's administration, and sometimes even sadly our unions. And I'm a huge, huge fan of the philosophy of being in a union, but sometimes I think it gets distorted and becomes self serving, and you get people on boards that know that they would fail that test, so they oppose it. Yeah. But as you said, if you understand validation studies, which so many people don't, and if you're an agency and you want to even your entrance exam to be hired, and if you were to have an annual PT test, or if you have a PT test, say, to make your SWAT team, to be legally defensible, you should have an individualized validation study for your particular agency, which will then determine what is the bare minimum standard for the people that are already currently doing the job at your department to do that job, if that makes sense. So they're going to take a, a randomized group of people from a particular agency and come up with some tests. It's not going to be some badass CrossFit meat grinder test. So it's not 
it's not going to eliminate people. It's just going to be a bare minimum standard to pass, if that makes sense. Well, it does. And I think the fire service, we're luckier than most professions in creating that because all you have to do is say, all right, you know, advance the hose this way, pull the ladder this way, pull the dummy that way. You know, I mean, these are things that we have to do in the fire service to do our job. So no one, you know, whether they're a 250-pound linebacker or a 80-pound, you know, gymnast, no one can say it's not fair because these are the tools that we use and this is what we're expected to do in our job. So if you get away from jump tests and, you know, max deadlifts and all these things that some people kind of tend to want to like uh, mimic, for example, the army test and just go on the functional tools that we use, then I don't see how any court can be, oh, it's not fair that you ask that person to carry a ladder. <laughs> you know, yeah. so that's if you if you use the tools that we already have in our profession, you can't go wrong. Yeah. And if anybody out there is interested, Jay Smith, a company called Fit Force, he is like the expert in the country and understanding the legalities and doing validation studies. There's very few people that do it. Other people jump because I researched the heck out of this when I was at the police academy and I met with people from all over the country. Many people will hire some IO psych that's 350 pounds of chewed bubble gum that knows nothing about physical fitness or the job demands. Um, and they will try to create some freaking silly test. So if you're really interested and you have any power in your agency to try to reevaluate your entrance test, your SWAT test, or think about an annual fitness test, Look up Fit Force, Jay Smith. He's the guy. Sounds like I need to get him on the show too then. You should. You should. Brilliant. Yeah. All right. Well then, so you have this background in in sport, in strength and conditioning, in, you know, the the SWAT, basically the tools of SWAT. So walk me through your early law enforcement um, career and then, you know, how you found yourself in special operations. Um, I start out in a department where the chief loves me and says he's going to you know, put me on SWAT and make me a detective and do all these things. But the department, first of all, I had no idea what I'm doing and no rookie cop knows what they're doing. So to even promise me SWAT and detective was ridiculous. And there was much more deserving people. Um, this guy made us write reports. If you pulled your gun, parts of Connecticut, even 20 years ago are now like what the rest of the country is. Every car you pulled over, you're going to document 15 different things and take up your time. You pull your gun, you're going to get chewed out and document it. So I was in an de initial department where the, even though I was going to be the golden boy, um, the chief just created massive morale issues. Poor leadership is the biggest problem as far as morale and law enforcement. Didn't understand the troops, didn't support the troops. So I don't know how long I stayed there, but I bailed and went to a, a rougher agency um, and I heard, I don't know if this is true or not. I heard they created some law that you have to stay with your agency for two years in Connecticut so they can recoup the costs of sending you to the academy. And somebody joked it was the Matt Domjancic law um, because I peeled out of there, didn't want to work for an agency where the morale was so bad. I ended up in a busier agency, but it had, you know, its issues too. And it wasn't going to have a lot of progression as far as the things I wanted and in Connecticut back then, they were already charging cops with murder for shooting, you know, convicted, previously deported felons that were shooting at them. And they would get off, but you ruin a cop's life when you charge them politically with something. So they were already anti-cop in Connecticut 20 years ago. 
And none of the people I met on different SWAT teams that I would go to the range and train with, they were not that high speed. And this is no knock. And I haven't met every SWAT guy in Connecticut. Um, but I decided after a few years, um, as, as hard as it was to leave Yale, it was harder to leave coaching at Yale than it was the police work in Connecticut. I moved to the DC area for a, a bigger agency that had a number of full-time tactical units. I had, I had a friend that I played college football with that was working there. So he connected me with people and I went down and met him ahead of time. And it was at the time a premier agency that was known to be super aggressive with super high standards. Um, and I had to take a significant pay cut and repeat a full six month Academy, but the promise of the specialty units and the proactive nature and higher standards of the agency, like I said, okay, this is worth it. So I went, repeated an academy, um, got the director's award, top academy graduate, which the good thing was that allows you to pick your district. So I picked the super busy district. During my FTO, I got in some good fights and had some good arrests. So there was an evening squad that had this former narc, street crimes jump out, Marine Corps guy that was Mr. Hardcore Cop, where you had to be nominated by him and then voted to be on the squad. Um, and it was a, the evening shift. Um, so very quickly I got on this busy evening shift with all these super passionate, proactive, aggressive cops with a boss that had very high standards, do it by the book, but go lock people up, but go be busy. Um, and he facilitated a lot of people from our, from our squad going to different specialty units because of how demanding he was and it was busy. So, um, I don't know how many years in it was, but why, well, one of the things I did even before SWAT was some religious cop said I should join peer support and nobody from my district was peer support. Um, but he knew I cared about people and doing ministry. And he said, you know what, peer support's a bunch of old ladies that show up to the busy districts, even though they work admin jobs or day shift in some safe area, they show up to the critical incidents in a busy district and want to hug you and tell you it's okay to cry and nobody wants to talk to them. So he said, hey, you're from, you know, this district. People know that you're a coach at Georgetown. Like you might have more credibility. So I joined peer support. Great experience. Got to do a lot of things in the D.C. area. And that um, I make what is called supplemental SWAT. So we were a full time SWAT team. Twelve guys were full time. And I think like 15 of us were supplemental, meaning you get a take home car, you get all the toys. You get to train twice a month. You get to go out on search warrants and operations, but you have your primary job. Like mine was patrol and then eventually full-time police academy instructor. Um, so do you want to know what our SWAT process was or? Yeah. I mean, I think it'll be interesting, you know, especially from the, uh, yeah, the testing and the strength and conditioning level too. So the, you had, I forget what, there was some kind of standards, like you had to have shot expert during your, qualifications for, I don't know if it was since you were in the academy or so many years, like if you've had two or three years of perfect or whatever the high score is in quals, then you have a day where you go to Quantico, this whole day thing, you start off running the Marine obstacle course. So you run that. Some people can't climb the rope at the end. So that DQs a lot of people. I think the day I went a hundred people tried it out. Some people fall out because they can't climb the rope. I sort of blame that on them because they had days where the SWAT guys taught you how to do the foot placement. That's the key to climbing a high rope, you know. 
So you climb, you do the Marine obstacle course. Then I think you had to run up the rappel tower with a ram in a certain amount of time. Maybe there was some other PT test at Quantico. Then you drive all the way back to the range. I think you run a half mile in four minutes, like in full BDUs, boots with a helmet and some like, I think it was like a Vietnam flak vest or something and carrying a shotgun. Uh, you, you do that whatever other PT tests that I forget because it was a long time ago, but as the day goes on, people aren't, you know, are falling out. Um, and then the final thing is the shooting. And I'm pretty sure it was our standard qualification, but what they did was, first of all, you've been doing PT stuff all day. Then they run you around the building and then in between uh, different drills, they're having you run suicides. And then people are tired and fatigued and even some badass military guys just forget their round count or forget the six reload, six kneel, whatever the things are. And people start making mistakes. At the end of that day, I think 50 people pass. So 100 people show up, 50 pass. And I think like 30 of us get invited to SWAT school. Then SWAT school, I think, was two weeks. Now, I'm learning as I deal with different agencies now. Um, we were a big agency, so we had our own SWAT school. So it was not just a SWAT certification. It was also tryouts. So those 30 people, we're getting trained in all these different things in SWAT, but they're also testing us. You know, we're, we're having PT competitions, group competitions. We go to Fort Belvoir and do a nature walk where they're tear gassing and, you know, chasing you with SIM and you're having to clear buildings and the bomb squad set up all these booby traps where you run in and you know, flashbangs are going off and tear gas and just, you know, getting paged out in the middle of the night to Quantico to run that obstacle course again, 15 times getting yelled at. And then at the end of the day, I think there was a NATO leadership course. There's all kinds of stuff at Quantico with different agencies. You do all these things at the end of the day, they tell you we're going to take a light jog and uh, just stretch out. And next thing you know, you're doing something called the yellow brick road, which is some super long run obstacle course in the woods and people are getting popped with IVs and uh, just a lot of fun. It was kind of like football camp, seer school, boot camp all over again, you know, running around with the logs, want to be Navy SEAL drills on breaks. Um, and after two weeks of that, they do an interview on GOs, SOPs. What are you going to do in a hostage situation? What are you going to do in this situation? And then two of the key questions they asked were, if you were the supervisor, who are three people? There's no way you would want them on the team and why. So they're watching you for those two weeks as they, you know, challenge and push you and shooting and PT and all the tactical stuff. But they want to know what the dynamics were with the group when you're out in the middle of the woods, you know, and it's, it's tough. And then they ask you, if you're the supervisor, who are three people you want on the team and why? And you can't pick yourself. So I don't know how much they heavily weighed that, but out of the initial 30, they picked three of us. And my best friend in that SWAT class is now the team commander and super amazing dude, ex-college football player as well, PT stud, just all around, great, great guy. Um, but that, that's our SWAT pro that was our SWAT process in a nutshell. I'm sure it changes over time depending on who's in charge. Well, what I love about that, it reminds me of the very first fire department I went to. And this was kind of by default that we ended up getting this level of training. And, and interestingly, there was a SWAT training going on using our fire tower at the same time. So we got to see some of those guys going through it for, I think there's only a couple of days they were there. But um, we were hired as 
basically non-cert, but about half of us had our certs, our fire cert, our EMT cert. So they sent the other half off to school and they just beat the shit out of us for three months. And that, <laughs> I mean, there's no other way to describe it. It was, it was, it was organized. It was, you know, planned. It was, um, cumulative, you know, um, but, yeah, I mean, our PT at the end was in full bunker gear, breathing air. You know, we, we'd go through these collapse maze after people would be puking in their masks and they couldn't reach their masks to, you know, it was just, you said about IVs, people had IVs in all the time. But that set that bar. It set the bar of, you know, of discomfort, of expectations so high. And I carried that through, you know, the rest of my career. And I'm not saying I was a phenomenal firefighter, but I was held to that standard. So that was my baseline. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. with what you went through, with what I went through, when you look at a regular academy, because some of the issues that, you know, we're seeing at the moment, and you know, you've got the the people on the outside saying defund and all this bullshit. A lot of us are looking at it the other way, saying, No, we need more training. We need you know higher salary to attract better people. So having been through a crucible like that, what's your um kind of impression of our the way we hire on the law enforcement side and do you think it should be closer to what you went through as far as harder academies yeah you, yeah, yeah. i mean it just it, to me you know the, the, if you set that bar high at the front door you've set down your expectations absolutely but unfortunately so many academies have been dumbed down for a couple reasons we've demonized and dehumanized the profession so much that departments are starving for applications so beggars can't be choosers. And, and this, I mean, I hesitate to even say this, but this is a reality in many major departments. Um, and I could, you know, get people upset at saying this, but the reality is when certain agencies say we're going to push for diversity of gender or color of skin over performance, they drop hiring and training standards because whoever they bring on board, they have to get everybody through the academy. And I saw this when I was a full-time academy instructor. And these are jobs that, you know, are life and death on a daily basis that society completely criticizes and thinks every cop should act like a lawyer, a psychologist, a social worker, a ninja, a Delta Force gunslinger, all rolled into one in split seconds. But we, you know, we lower hiring and training standards and we barely have in-service training. But America loves its sports so much that I don't think we would ever tell the NFL that you need to draft more Asians. The NHL needs to draft more blacks. The MLB has to draft more Polynesians. Um, and the NBA has to draft more Hispanics. Like, no, whoever the best athlete is gets the job. And there are tons of badass women and people of all persuasions out there. But we need to increase the benefits and pay for some of these departments because why are you going to take a job that you're likely, you know, I'm going to get death threats. I'm going to get charged with a crime for defending myself and I'm going to barely make ends meet. So we can't get always the highest qualified applicants. Yeah. Well, I think this is an important conversation that has to be had and I don't think it's offensive at all. If you, you know, turn, turn that kind of problem on its head, I've seen some of the places that work really well. So whether it's the boxing program in New York, whether it's, um, it was just Pat Russo, one of the, um, NYPD guys up there that started that. I've got a friend, Chris Hickman, who's a firefighter that started a mentorship program here in Ocala, where I live. And they remove the barrier to entry. You can come and box. You can come and, you know, learn how to be a firefighter for free. 
And then you know, that's going to allow you to focus all that energy in a positive way. And then, you know, if you're, if you're one of these people that's destined to be a firefighter, we will give you all, they, excuse me, not we, they will give you all the tools, the training, everything. There are scholarships available and find the best people in some of the more underserved elements of the community and find the best candidates. So that is, you know, to me, what the answer is. We find the best people of all backgrounds and we bring them into the fire service, into law enforcement. But if you just go by pigmentation or gender, then not only is that a slap in the face to every one of those categories that's earned their right to be in the fire service, like you said, then we set ourselves up for failure at all the ranks leading up to the top. Yeah, yeah. And we definitely should not promote on those standards either. Promotions should be all performance-based. We should be doing 360 evaluations where your peers and your subordinates get to evaluate you, and those should weigh heavily in promotional exams. And every step of the way as a cop, your patrol record should be looked at. You should not be a supervisor if you didn't spend significant amount of time hustling and locking people up on a graveyard or an evening shift because patrol is the backbone of policing in America. And when you have supervisors, chains of command and chiefs that spent their time in administrative jobs that do not understand the troops, huge morale issues, and it kills proactive police work. So promotions... I think if you're not familiar with 360 eval, if your peers don't like you consistently, that's a red flag. If you're a sergeant or lieutenant and the people on the street don't like you, that's a problem. If you haven't had a lot of time in a busy district or on a tactical unit or an investigative unit and you're jumping around desk cubicle jobs, you should not be, you know, climbing the ladder. And I think um, I heard Gracie talk about this and I, uh, uh, Renner Gracie and one of his jujitsu for law enforcement things, I was like upset and frustrated because it's not true. But he said that there's departments where their PT test, annual PT test, which so few have, and their annual firearms qual scores are part of promotional exams. And I said, man, I sent him an email. I said, I wish that were true. So before we promote people, were you ever a quote, real cop locking up bad guys? And what's your firearms score every year? What's your PT score every year? And do you have significant operational experience on specialty units or investigation units? Yeah, and I've seen that myself. So I worked for four departments uh, ultimately before I transitioned out, one of whom, you know, the chiefs were the same men and women that you heard all these war stories for at the ground level. And so, you know, you just had this built in respect because you knew they had done exactly what you did and probably even more because they were they were a firefighter 20 years prior when a lot more was burning and then conversely i worked for one where the entire the entire upper echelon none of them had ever actually served as a firefighter any proper capacity at all our entire administration so you know you imagine the ego that was going on there when some of the people on the ground level like hey we we want to try and you know push some change and you know we don't mind doing this class or teaching that class and it was it was awful so i saw that exact thing you're talking about and i agree 100% now you don't have to be the john rambo of a department but if you haven't walk the walk if you haven't done the job if you haven't you know work shifts and understood the dangers and been spat on by the public and all these things but you've got all these pieces of paper that you got at community college then from my own observational data that is a recipe for disaster oh it is and half of these leadership courses are complete jokes so i get certified in leadership and what is the biggest problem in law enforcement it's getting critiqued for use of force incident 
and they're we're scapegoating police as being you know corrupt racist and murderers no if there are ugly uses of force it's a training issue and if you don't have people that were real cops and loved the job and trained for a specialty unit or investigative unit they don't understand that so we don't have leaders right now that are going to their city council or the county board of exec or the mayor and saying we need more money for more training like I think police academies, this is my pie in the sky, should be, it's scary, there's some that aren't even six, but I think the standard police academy is six months. I think there should be an eight-month academy. And the first six months, check the box, do whatever post or your state certification requires, because a lot of that is just death by PowerPoint, walk through this. You, You really don't learn a ton, and you're not walking away proficient at defensive tactics or even, you know, tactical shooting at most academies. There may be some out there that are higher speed and spend a lot of time with DT and tactical shooting, but most probably not. Then after you check the box for all the certification stuff for your state, the last two months, Monday through Thursday, every day is a DT session, a strength and conditioning session, and a tactical firearm session. When I say tactical firearms, it's not shooting paper and broad daylight standing still, like shooting and moving, shooting, moving targets, shooting from different positions, you know, learning how to clear a house, shooting on steel. So you might get a little faster with point shooting. Um, And in between the shooting, the strength conditioning and the defensive tactics, you're learning how to journal, meditate, breath work, yoga, Tai Chi, whatever. You're doing other wellness, stress management and meaning making. Like how do, I'm going to see things that are going to be tough. And this is where we start doing some training to prevent mental health issues in between all of the tactical training. And then every Friday, if you're tracking full scenario day. So you get real stress inoculation, force on force with simulation scenarios where you're driving, getting out, dealing with the situation that may go south and it's an adrenaline dump. And also you should be wearing high gear suits because you can move a lot better than red man the Tony Blower high gear suits, and then you have to arrest resistive subjects. So get two months of a ton of defensive tactics, shooting, fitness, and tons of stress inoculation scenario training, then go to your FTO. Does that make sense to you? No, it does completely. And again, back to that first fire, not the academy, but the orientation, the first department, which was Hialeah down near Miami. Um, that was what we did. It was repetition, repetition, getting more and more, you know, the stress was getting more and more acute. And like I said, at the end, they gave us through this, basically this unwinnable scenario. And we didn't know it was unwinnable. And they told us if we failed it, then we lost our jobs. So <laughs> there was a lot wow. of, a lot of very, very tired puking, you know, double IV having firefighters at the end of it. But, um, it was all building towards that. And the whole point of that was just to see how far you could push. And it was done. They were very intelligent with it. The way they, they did the rest periods and the cooling and the hydration was, was, you know, you need that as well, especially in the, the Florida summer heat. But yeah, I mean, that stress, not inoculation, but that stress training under stress, training under duress, I think is so important. And then repetition. And, you know, I, I had the uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman on a couple of times. And one of the most haunting stories he talks about is a couple of shootings where there was a, a policeman killed, police officer killed with the casings in their hand because they just yeah. repeated picking up the casings at the range. And, you know, yep. they've been picking them up when, when they got shot. So, you know, in the fire service, I think that's one thing we do well is, you know, obviously we have our toolbox that comes with us. So it's very easy if you have a good academy to get that repetition 
you know, deploy hose, load it again, deploy hose, load it again, throw a ladder, bring it down. So, you know, yeah. that's what we rely on when the shit hits the fan. Now, with, with the defensive tactics side, I'm, I've been a martial artist most, most of my life. Again, you know, very kind of weekend warrior-esque, but, um, I saw one agency talked about, um, requiring blue belt and jujitsu for all their officers. So mm-hmm. what, what is your observation of, DTAG when you first entered as far as the unarmed side and then, you know, where you think that should be today. Are you saying like the type of training I got? Yeah. So uh, what, what was the, what was the unarmed element when you got it? And then and now fast forward to 2021, what in an ideal world should we be seeing at academies and orientations? Well, like I said, I was doing MMA with guys like Roger Denton and Vinny Giardino Giordano in New York City and Connecticut while I was in grad school and had done a bunch of Tony Blower training before I went to the academy. The DT in Connecticut was a joke. I mean, I can't even describe how the moves that they were teaching us were unrealistic and wouldn't even naturally happen in a fight. And you, you would like throw a punch and pause the punch so somebody could grab it and then leg sweep you like just horrible, horrible. Um, my next academy, I had some great DT instructors that were legitimate martial artists. The problem was they didn't get the time with us they wanted. And then you have so many, you got to do this with the baton, so many strikes this way, so many handcuffing moves this way. And so there's a checklist that you have to go through. So it's not like you're really learning this stuff where it's an automatic skill when you go get in a real fight. Like think about as a martial artist, how many hours would it take? And I I used to ask people this, instructors, how many hours would it take for somebody going to an MMA, jiu-jitsu, krav, muay thai, sambo, wrestling, judo class to be able to pull one of those moves off in real life in a self-defense situation? We see it in the cage. I mean, that's not even self-defense, but a lot of the stuff that when we were younger, we were told, you know, was effective on the street. You know, and I know it's not the street, it's a sport, but even so... You see, really, you know the the common denominator um, elements of each martial art that actually work in live combat. Yeah, well, I'm just saying hours wise, and something I, I've said before is, you might get 40 or 72 hours in an academy of 300 different defensive tactics, handcuffing and baton moves, all thrown into one, and after 40 hours. Could you know a sport? If I took somebody that never played football, could I spend 40 hours with them and then expect them to be proficient at football? Absolutely not, especially especially when you're using multiple limbs. Yeah. So we, are, we have our high school athletes that get more training per week, and this would relate more to in-service training, but two or three hours a night as a high school athlete, you're grinding, practicing your sports skills. That's more hours in a week than a cop gets in a year of defensive tactics and shooting skills that are life and death that every politician, lawyer, and special interest group is picking apart from the comfort of their cubicle, something that a cop did in three seconds and barely had training, in my opinion. Like our sports, you train 90% of the time as an athlete to compete 10% of the time, maybe. And you're also, you have a strength conditioning staff, a sports medicine staff, a sports psychologist, depending on where you are. You, you have meetings where you're watching film, you're studying the playbook. Sports is about, if you want to be successful in sports, it's all about preparation and a little bit of competition. In law enforcement, you get a little bit of preparation up front. And then for the next 20 years, you don't know when you're going to go to work and play your Super Bowl 
that could mean you or your partner or somebody in the community is going to die or be maimed. I think another element from a firefighter looking at law enforcement is when most of us get on scene, and obviously I'm not talking about, you know, like the volunteers in a very remote area or, um, you know, paid on call person, but a majority of the, you know, the, the stations that are together, whether they're paid, whether they're volunteer, we arrive at least with another person, more likely three or four people total. And then you're joining another group and another group. So even if, you're a rookie you know you have those other areas hopefully with a lot more experience to guide you and mentor you the way a lot of agencies do law enforcement which i am so opposed to which is one single individual in a car on their own that in itself that dynamic seems to be another element that sets them up for failure versus some of the you know the la and some of those places that have at least two in a car so again you've you've got that kind of um you know, cumulative effect of two people, you know, one more experienced and, 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 you know, two sets of hands. So you can actually apply those DTAC, um, you know, uh, tactics to that individual and hopefully de-escalate, not escalate that situation. Yeah. But staffing budgets, like even before the chaos of the last two years, police departments across the country were understaffed and people were not applying. Like you used to have one police opening and have 300 applicants and they used to have, I don't know if they had more funding, but people are short staffed. And if you want two people per car, it's that's all you're gonna have to have way more officers, you know? Yeah. So it's money, it's money, it's money. Um, but yeah, and you said something about de-escalation. Well, cops that are more fit, confident in fighting, confident in shooting, and have been inoculated to stress through repetitive scenario training or their prior experiences in contact sports, martial arts, and the military are always better at de-escalation and communication and what I consider community policing. It's the police officers that are not fit, that get scared because they don't know how to fight, that are ramping things up verbally and escalate things, as well as you know go through the use of force uh, levels much quicker than somebody that's confident and going hands-on. You know, they start screaming, threatening the suspects. One more time, I'm going to lock you up. They pull their OC, their ASP, the taser, or even their gun when somebody who is super fit athlete with some kind of at least confident in going hands-on or has a martial arts background and shoots once a month and does one tactical tactical shooting course a year, like somebody that knows they can handle it if it goes to the next level can remain calm and think more clearly and make better decisions and communicate better yeah and we, i've talked about this with other people too i think you know whether it's someone wearing you know a uniform whether it's someone just out in the in the public you can tell when someone's confident in their skills you can tell where physically they are trained and i think that's that discourages a lot of opportunistic criminals so you absolutely know, a lot of the you know the, the very fit martial arts excuse me martial artists law enforcement officers i've had on here they're they really don't have many stories of having to go on hands-on very much because they usually have a compliant, you know, um, citizen because they know damn well if they try their luck, it's not going to end well. Yeah. yeah. Well, you show up on scene with a bunch of guys that look jacked or, hey, obviously these guys are bodybuilders, powerlifters, crossfitters, or some ex-Marine that, you know, is a competitive Ironman. Uh, I'm not going to run. I'm less likely to run or fight these guys. Um, yeah. Yeah. I just, something crossed my mind as far as academy training. 
you know, you've mentioned a couple names. I got to meet Dave Grossman before I was a cop as well. I went and saw him at the SIG Arms Academy. Um, and then throughout my career, I saw him at conferences, brought him to my agency, was a great guy that would talk to me on the phone. So Tony Blauer, Dave Grossman, huge influences on my law enforcement career. And also a guy named Dr. Paul Whitesell, who might still be the superintendent of the Indiana State Police. Another legendary martial artist, psychologist, veteran. He, in the old days, had a video called Combat Psychology. Um, I mean, and then I'm sure you're familiar with Kevin Gil Martin and emotional survival for law enforcement. You know, they should take Tony Blauer, Dave Grossman, Kevin Gil Martin, and Dr. Paul Whitesell and do a roundtable and say, what are some national standards that police academies should have? And let those guys come up with, you know, some ideas or have the politicians listen to guys like that. Oh, 100%. I just went to um, the Echelon Front uh, muster. So that's Jocko Willink, Leif Bab, and all, all those guys. And mm-hmm. it was a two-day leadership, you know, seminar, as it were. But ultimately, you know, what it was about was ego. And, you know, I was there. There was, there was a lot of law enforcement people there, a lot of fire there, as well as, you know, business and, and other, you know, professions. But the people that were there were the ones that probably already understood that. And we were trying to work even more on ourselves. But even from a leadership standpoint, you know, we in the fire service, like you said, we have these pieces of paper that get us our promotions. But then you hear these truly respected leaders from outside our profession. And their, their message is very simple. You know, it's, it's like you said, it's humility. It's, it's training. It's, it's walking the walk and, you know, having been there yourself. Um, so I wish that. We had people outside our profession that would come in and, and do more with the leadership side, too. Well, I don't know if our leadership is open to it because, you know, you hear <laughs> I, I hear about somebody in the government put together a panel and I look at the panel and I either don't recognize the names or some of the names I recognize are some chief of police that is totally unpopular and, you know, has no credibility in their agency, but they're on some government uh group they put together to say, what are, what should we do in police work, you know, or academics. Academics are the last people that should be telling, you know, cops what kind of training or how they should be operating on the streets. Like the academic world is completely out of touch with reality, especially these days. So I, I don't know, you know, you would have to have one heck of a chief of police that would then go to the, their government body and say, I want all this money to bring in Dave Grossman, Tony Blauer, Kevin Gilmartin, and Dr. Paul Whitesell. And I'm sure there's so many other people that are amazing. I'm just saying those are four people that I have met in person that I think are legit, um, that I would be super safe in suggesting to any agency. Or if I won the lotto, I would pay agencies to have those people come and implement training suggestions at their agency. Um, what, what chief... Uh, is even I don't know how many chiefs might even be aware of these types of guys or command staffs, and then you're going to have to convince somebody to pay a lot of money for them to come and do something with your agency. So again, here we are. It's another. It's a money issue. Well, I think another thing you said with your agency, and that's one thing I got from from this muster, this seminar as well, was they were talking about you know poor leadership creates silos, and we see this in police and fire. You know, it shouldn't be for one agency. What if the the entire you know, American police force got together and took these mutually, um, you know, uh, respected 
figures and all learn from them. It just drives me crazy like when, when you have agencies where county and city don't talk or police and fire don't talk and we're all reinventing the, wa- the wheel when we do exactly the same job. And yeah, there are some yeah. idiosyncrasies between, you know, rural um, Iowa and, you know, DC metro, but ultimately we're still, you know, dealing with human beings. So even if it's not apples to apples, we can still use that as a framework. Yeah. Yeah. There was a COVID stopped it, but there was a group here in the South Bay of Los Angeles that has brought out people like Kevin Gilmartin and it's free. I don't know how they raise the money or they do it. But any agency from L.A. could come and spend a whole day with Kevin Gilmartin. So um, and I do know here there's, you know, different specialty units that train regionally. So if they bring in, uh, you know, some kind of high speed canine handler, they invite other agencies. So at least I'm seeing it out here um, where agencies do share the love as far as training. And back in the day, I will say at the agency that I worked for back in the day, at least. When I was at the academy, I had a pretty good budget to bring in a lot of good people, and it may have changed. Um, but back then, they I had to fight people because I wanted to cancel all these old timers. They were bringing in on contracts and bring in new people for the fitness and the DT and things like that. But at some point, some agencies, I think we're doing a lot of good things. But right now, every agency, the economy's hurting, money's a big problem. And things are now political decisions rather than practical data-driven decisions about why we criticize law enforcement for use of force. Well, then let's evaluate training. I never hear in the mainstream media when they're dogging somebody like, what was this guy's training record? When's the last time he did defensive tactics or how frequently? When's the last time he did any stress inoculation scenario training? Does this guy get fitness on duty time? Or is he covered, you know, does he get a gym membership? And if he gets hurt, is he covered? I mean, I have a lot of questions about people's training history when I see things that look ugly on dash or body cam, because I think most are just really probably well-intentioned police officers that are spazzing out or panicking because they are just not highly enough trained. Well, I think another thing you talk about, we never hear, we also never hear how many shifts did that officer have to do because of staffing? Oh. You know, how much sleep did that officer get? And especially in the fire service, like, you know, we do 24-hour shifts as it is. A couple of the agencies I work for were chronically understaffed. So we would get mandatory all the time. So you're 48 hours without sleep. You know, and you look at some of these wrecks at intersections, some of these, you know, the, I'm going to talk about law enforcement. The, the kid that reaches in the glove box for his driving license, he's unarmed, he gets shot. Did that officer want to murder a teenager? No. But in that split second, sleep deprived, would he have made a different decision if he'd actually been well rested? So again, you know, we always point at at the finances, but you look at the long game, how much money is spent on all these, you know, these claims of negligence and, you know, these wrongful deaths and all that. If we invested that front end and actually raised the bar, paid these officers better, you know, made the academy longer, um, kept a, an annual fitness standard, you know, you would probably save hand over fist, but that takes someone with a set of balls to say, I don't want to look good this fiscal year. I'm investing in this department. So 10 years from now, people will thank me. I am so on board with that. So even when it's a justified use of force, departments pay hundreds of thousands of dollars or many millions of dollars. Like the Floyd case alone, 27 million. Breonna Taylor, I think was 12 million. What what kind of training could you pay for with 12 million or 27 million? 
And let's not even include the cost of rebuilding cities that have been burned down after these incidents. So yeah, we spend so much money reactively for sometimes not even mistakes, like completely justified uses of force, but they still got to pay out. And we don't want to invest in training. Yeah. I mean, I know, I mean, to me, the George Floyd, not just the the one individual, but that scene, and I'm sure you probably had the same, you know, if, if I think most of us with a clear head had seen that scene, we would have intervened at some point and be like, all right, just, you know, let me take over holding this person. You go calm down for a second. That, you know, was, was definitely one of the worst cases we've seen. But then you have that recent one of the active stabbing and that officer gets out and shoots the, the assailant. And they were trying to come down on him. It's like, no, <laughs> how could you say that was unjustified when someone was actively trying to murder someone else? And I think you should be hailing that person as a hero. His reaction was incredible. I mean, he came it up was. on the scene. So, you know. It was. That, shooting and moving at a moving target with an innocent bystander about to get murdered inches from that person. That was a shit hot, you know, tactical uh, <laughs> performance by that guy. But the the media and politicians have an agenda. And I don't want to go down the rabbit hole with the Floyd thing. But I have heard and I don't know this for a fact, but I've heard that Minneapolis's training is like 10 or 20 years behind what what people get in California, just like when I was in Connecticut, it was 20 years behind what I got in the DC area. So, you know, if that was an agency that was much better trained. And first of all, there's also the dynamics. Two of those people uh, were on FTO. They were training only for a week or two. And one of them did try to speak up. And if you push that envelope of speaking up to an FTO, you may not make it through your FTO or probation period. So there's kind of some dynamics there when you have rookies on scene. Yeah. But I think if you were... uh, I'll use an example. I think the LA Sheriff's Department training is really good. I don't think you would see that in the LA Sheriff's Department because the people are just much better trained. Somebody would have, yeah, it's just, I think some of that could have to do with training. Yeah. Well, I want to get to the mental health side because obviously that's a big part that we're going to talk about. But just before we do, um, you know, we had a brief interaction um, on social media before. And I kind of want to, I always, I ask anyone that's been exposed to kind of crime, whether it's domestically, whether it's internationally, this question, because the focus is on law enforcement. Well, the other question is, how the hell do we stop our streets being so dangerous in the first place? Um, now, yeah. I sat down, I just through a, a bunch of, you know, bizarre coincidences, my couple of my family members ended up moving to Portugal. And my mom said to me a few years ago after I started this, hey, did you know they de- decriminalize addiction? not smuggling, not selling, but addiction in, in Portugal. And they've had this amazing turnaround. They were the, the worst when it came to addiction in the whole, I think it was Europe at least. Um, and then they went to the least. So I actually went to Lisbon in Portugal, sat down with the, uh, the guy who spearheaded. It was all done very democratically. It was put to a vote. Um, and after the first kind of time around, the, what was the opposition ended up switching and they were, they were for it as well when they saw the results. But by removing the criminality of the addict, and again, let me be clear, I'm not talking about the the smuggler, the the seller, the pusher, but just the the addict themselves, they filtered all that money again proactively like we were talking about before. And the addicts, knowing they weren't going to be arrested, started coming out and they filtered them through mental health counseling, addiction counseling, even job creation. They weren't given 
you know, um, criminal record. So therefore they were able to gain employment, um, and kind of break that vicious circle. As a, as a paramedic, as a firefighter, I worked in a lot of really, really poor areas and saw a lot of the ripple effect of addiction, whether it was overdoses, whether it was a lot of the crime that selling to addicts creates. Um, but law enforcement is the hardest group to ask this question because you have been enforcing these laws the whole time. It's, you know, ethos that you were raised on. Mm-hmm. What is your opinion of decriminalization of addiction? So not locking up addicts for the sake of, you know, being found with the personal use of, uh, of, you know, uh, a substance. My friend, that experiment has already failed in California, Oregon, and Washington. So it is not illegal to be an addict in America at all. And right now, come visit LA or San Francisco and see what the legalization of drugs has done. Crimes go through the roof um, and homelessness increases. And there's gonna be more use of force incidents because when people are high, they often fight the police and resist arrest and run. When people are high, they often kill and maim people and car accidents. And to feed their addiction, they rob people, they shoplift, they burglarize and, you know, are stealing catalytic converters and cars and all of these things we're not punishing people for in California. So I think the, at least here in America, I mean, addiction is not illegal and personal drug use in a lot of places is not a crime anymore. You can have freaking whatever drug you want on here in California and you might just, they might just dump it out or you're going to get a, a ticket. But are we so, are we but are we actually using the funds to create the avenues because because addiction is a mental health question you know crisis we know that for a fact so I'm not talking about just not arresting there's obviously got to be the proactive side so you know are in, in Portugal you're when you're detained you go into an interview and you're basically educated on these avenues that you have now so you know uh, to me you take the power away from the underworld and you put it into the hands of the medical community. So you're not, you know, you're not out there like you can't buy meth on, in the store in Portugal, but when you're caught with it, you're then kind of filtered through this mental health element. And if you are a user, there are safe, you know, injection sites so you can go and, you know, take whatever it is you're given it by a clinic. You stay there while you take it, you're observed so you don't overdose and then you leave again, you know, so you're not having people dying in the streets either. So I, I don't feel like we've got any version of that here in the U.S. yet. Well, I think at one point this, you know, first of all, the the recovery rates from addiction, even in the most ideal of circumstances, if you and I were rich and an addict and we could go to one of these Malibu places on the beach and get massage and acupuncture and do yoga with some hot babe every day, still to recover from an addiction, the, the success rate's very small. But I think in America, because I know nothing about Portugal, if people got locked up for their crimes with, and actually got punished. Like we had some real law and order, which we haven't had at least in a couple of years. Say you're in jail for six to nine months. Granted, there, there can be drugs in jail, but ideally you're sober for six to nine months. You're on your psychiatric medications for six to nine months, and you're in your NA or AA or whatever substance abuse groups and getting counseling while you're in jail. And believe it or not, I have known stories of people that come back to find me at the police station and thanked me for locking them up because they got clean. 
But right now, there's no, there's no, we cannot have, none of us as a human being changes our behavior if we don't have consequences for our actions. And right now, I can at least tell you in California, there's no consequences for being a drug addict or having drugs or maybe even dealing drugs or committing crimes while you're high on drugs. So I can't wrap my head around what they're doing in Portugal because I see how bad it is out here in California and I hear about it and many other places too. Yeah, and in America, and that's why you know I like asking everyone's perspective. Everyone's got different. I've had police officers that know about Portugal that are huge fans of it, and then people you know like yourself that that aren't. And that's that's how human beings are. You know, <laughs> that's what a discussion is. I don't have to persuade you or say, oh, but you know, everyone has their own version. So beautiful. All right, well, staying on that, that's a mental health topic. So tell me about. Um, where along your kind of career journey you started becoming aware of the mental health issue in in um, law enforcement because you mentioned about being approached quite early by someone from peer support yeah um i don't know if i was as aware i wasn't as aware as i am now because i get you know i'm talking to cops and firemen every day from different agencies and PTSD facilities and different peer support organizations that come to me. So I hear some of the worst of the worst, but um, when I was a police officer, I don't think I was as aware one, because I was in an agency that had really high standards at the time. And also because maybe back then the stigma was even greater than it is now. So if somebody was struggling, there was probably no way in hell they're coming out about it. You know, so I had people confide in me certain things um, and I would suggest therapy or, you know, get more involved in your faith life. I was always trying to encourage people to get help. Um, but then, unfortunately, we run into the problem of there's a lot of crappy therapists and psychologists that are not culturally competent to deal with first responders uh, in the first place. And now because things are so political, I have encourage people to go to therapy and they end up going and, uh, you know, therapists and psychologists come out and start talking politics and how they don't support the police. Uh, so oh God. There, there's super, you can get. Oh, there's super challenges. And then even faith wise, so many churches and synagogues are like supportive of BLM, whether they are identifying with Marxism and the anti-nuclear family roots or not. But when I'm a police officer and I show up to a religious service or a prayer group or a yoga class and they start off by talking about let's pray for all the victims of police brutality and police are murdering. And it could be right after a shooting such as Jacob Blake or the Columbus, Ohio shooting that are 100 percent legitimate. But yet the faith communities are bashing cops and jumping on the bandwagon of racism, murder, corruption. Like people are not dealing in reality of the statistics we have and data on crime and who's committing the crimes and use of force incidents in this country. Um, so I, yeah, to answer your question, I was probably not as aware when I was a cop, even though I was peer support and a lot of people did confide in me and maybe it's because not as many people came clean or because I was in an agency where there was much higher standards and uh, they, they did have, at the time, I think they did have avenues to try to get help. And I know some people that got in trouble, say, for alcohol incidents, and thank God they didn't get fired. Now they would in some agencies. That's a difference, too. 
when an officer, a fireman gets in an incident <clears throat> with alcohol, whether it's a DUI or even a domestic dispute, but they report, you have to report the dispute and you were intoxicated. There are some agencies where the peer support or mental health professional swoops in and they say, hey, we're going to get you treatment because we realize that a ton of first responders self-medicate to deal with the accumulated stress and trauma. So we bear responsibility and are going to get you the help. But then there's other agencies that if you come and ask for help, mental health or substance abuse issue, or you get in trouble, then they're looking to IA you or fire you or get rid of you or a fit for duty. Does that make sense? No, it does. And I've heard it a lot, especially in law enforcement, you get your, your badge and gun taken away. And I think that, you know, going back to what we were talking about before, I think that the addiction through alcohol is is the kind of uh, oh excuse me the addiction through illicit drugs is is the tip of the iceberg and beneath the surface is alcoholism or you know or infidelity or gambling or social media use or you know taking every hour of overtime you possibly can I mean they all manifest in different ways but um so yeah so with with your lens that you have how you know what's the difference what is being said or done in an agency that's allowing confidentiality when others are getting these psychologists to report well i mean i don't know if i understand the question exactly but you need an agency where this again goes back to leadership because i do know some agencies that do have good peer support but they don't trust the chief or people on command staff so i'm not going to go to the mental health professional or peer support if i don't trust somebody up top that they might get this information and then fit for duty or IA me or I'm going to get, quote, punished in some way, or I'm not going to get promoted down the road, or I'm not going to make the gang or the SWAT team because I had some issues that I actually got help for earlier in my career. So leadership plays a role. Um, and then also my big thing is peer support and mental health with first responders is primarily reactive. Let's wait until you are on your second divorce, addicted to the pills from the knee surgery that had you out on injury leave where you were disconnected from your brothers and sisters and nobody was checking on you. So you were popping, you know, Vicodin and washing it down with booze. And, and then we come in after you're freaking broken. Why are we not starting in the academy and in service teaching you how to mentally, emotionally and physically deal with stress and trauma? And we have retreats. I mean, have you heard of Save a Warrior, Boulder Crest, The Warrior Ascent, The Sparta Project? Um, and there's treatment facilities, Simple Recovery, First Responders First, First Call. Um, these are places just for first responders to get substance abuse and you know mental health help. But this is all reactive. So like if you're suicidal and addicted and going through another divorce, and then I send you on a retreat for five days where you... You journal, you meditate, you do yoga, you do a prayer labyrinth, you do outdoor activities, you talk to a therapist, you do small group sharing with your peers, and it helps. Why aren't we teaching these things beforehand? These are things you can do to manage and maintain yourself mentally, emotionally, and spiritually throughout your career, rather than everything's reactive, PTSD, PTSD. Suicidal ideation. Okay, now let's help. We kind of, we tend to, some people call it trauma drama. We focus on trauma drama and psychopathologizing PTSD and ignore the fact that so many cops and firemen and veterans have become stronger, deeper, wiser, and more self-confident through their struggles via, you know, what you could call post-traumatic growth. 
Well, I think that's how you sell it to, you know, a lot of the, the men and women in our profession that were resistant is you go back to that sporting analogy. You know, you take Kobe Bryant or, or Jordan or someone, you know, all the, the sports psychologists that they work with, the visualization, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, of mental health, um, elements that just create a greater performance so the more that you work through especially at the front door and i talk about this you know a lot of us bring a lot of baggage into this profession so if you're able to deal you know like process that you're going to be more resilient you're going to be a better responder so i i couldn't agree more i just had a phone call with a friend who just went to save a warrior about uh, four months ago i think it was um, had an amazing results. He's actually got two of his friends have just gone through as well now. Um, so you get that kind of force multiplier. But I, I agree 100%. On the flip side, the, the dark side is the murder-suicide we just saw in LA. We've had two suicides in my one of my previous departments here in Florida. You know, So that's the, that's the too late. Yeah, you can be reactive or you can completely miss, miss it and you end up burying firefighters. So to do it at the front door, to give these men and women the tools, not only to deal with trauma as far as, you know, the things that we see and do, the, maybe the relationship elements, but also, as you were saying, breath work and stuff that can make you better when you have to pull your weapon, when you have to go hands-on, when you have to de-escalate a situation. So there are so many pluses to doing this in the academy and making it a norm. Yeah, and there's something else. And again, this comes down to money. Some departments were doing something called uh, blind billing therapy, which means you could get 10 free sessions a year. You or your family, you go see any therapist or psychologist you want. There are, there's no names that are reported back to the agency, just a number, right? And they pay the bill. So you can go to therapy without there any stigma that your, your peers are going to find out or your supervisor is going to find out or the promotional exam or board is going to find out. And it, I would help, I would hope help normalize is going to therapy if the departments are offering it, paying for it, and making it completely anonymous. Yeah, I think that the money is a big one. So what I found is people are looking for, as you said, a culturally competent um, counselor, and they'll finally find one, but they're not in their insurance network, and it's a 100 bucks a pop, you know, and obviously you're not going to get better on one visit. So I think that financial side is huge. If you can remove the barrier to entry financially, because a lot of us – don't earn a lot of money in our careers. Um, mm-hmm. That's another way of keeping that door open. So you have the right person and remove any sort of financial barrier. I think you get a lot more people going. And and like you said, the anonymity being maintained as well. Yeah. And and another thing is just being more open. Like so, I tomorrow I'm going shooting with young veterans transitioning out of the military. Great company called Covered Six. You can use the GI Bill to be certified in executive protection or armed security. And so once or twice a month through a San Luis Obispo uh, deputy sheriff, awesome firearms instructor, jujitsu, all around badass guy who uh, is actually in charge of his department's peer support and chaplains, got me involved. And so uh, thank God I can still draw and shoot pretty fast. And the veterans think it's cool that some old chaplain is still somewhat in shape and can run a gun. And so when me and him just have discussions on breaks and over lunch and at the end of the day about, hey, guys, you've probably seen some things in combat that might bother you. There's no shame and getting help and talking to somebody. And we want you to focus on your fitness, your fighting and your, your shooting. But we want you to have relationships and hobbies outside of work. We want you to you know, take care of self-care and stress management 
And it doesn't mean you're a P-U-S-S-Y. It doesn't mean you're broken and it doesn't mean you're weak. And I mean, literally just having a couple of older guys that younger men might respect because you can shoot and fight or look like you still lift weights and you just open up the topic of conversation and say, you're not a P-U-S-S-Y, take better care of yourself. Well, then people just start talking openly sometimes, or they get your card and they call you that night or send you a text. We just need to be, I, I think in one small way, it would help if leaders in departments and respected people in departments came out, maybe even did roll call briefing videos of, hey, when I was going through a divorce, I went to therapy for a year and it helped me keep my shit together. Or I went to therapy and it helped me save my marriage or open up about, I was on injury leave and drinking. So I had to check myself. People come clean and just admit that other people have had struggles. We're, we're all going to face pain and loss and have adversity in our life. And nobody's immune to the mental health struggles of dealing with it. So can other people come out and talk about how they manage that stuff? And if it's respected men and women in departments, that helps destigmatize it. Absolutely. And I've said this a lot, you know, it's, when when it's a wafy looking hippie and i I mean that caricature wise i'm not (laughs) making fun of anyone that happens to fit that that bill but they're talking about feelings you know there's a lot of fire police you know military they're just going to switch off you know and you know there's a lot of people that from that more earthy community they're going to switch on but our our community requires buy-in so when you have a man or a woman who walks the walk physically and mentally and certainly it has the courage to say here's what i went through let me tell you a story that i see that over and over again people come on this podcast and then you know the guests will say yeah after i went on I got all these messages and emails and it wasn't just like, oh, thank you. And that's it. The messages, like you said, hey, I've been struggling. You know, I heard you, you tell your story. You know, can you tell me more about how you got help? And all they did was just tell their story. So yep. there are so many people out there, you know, hiding and we're so good at putting up that facade. I mean, even more so you guys, I think, because you have to have that, that poker face, you know, more so than us. But, um, yeah. And then, you know, it, it, that true strength isn't how much you can deadlift or, or bench, just whether you've got the guts to stand up and be vulnerable in front of your peers. Absolutely. It's being a human being. We talked about this offline. I have not met a cop or a fireman or a paramedic that one-on-one in private having a conversation that when something comes up about a dead kid, that somebody do, that 100% of people have some kind of, you know, heavy hearted, if not, they show their tears over some call over a child, abused or a neglected child. There's calls that every one of us can't get out of our head unless you're some first responder that's never dealt with a suffering child. And I'm just using that as one example. But if you're a human being, seeing children suffer is going to break your heart. And we shouldn't be on scene and tell the rookie, suck it up. If you can't hack it, kid, this job ain't for you. We should be on scene and be like, dude, this is heartbreaking. Man, this breaks my heart. If you want to talk about this, you know, say to a rookie and training or somebody a couple years on the job, why doesn't the salty veteran say, man, this is heartbreaking. And if you need to talk to somebody, come to me or go see the department psychologist if you have one most don't or talk to peer support or whatever like just be honest about the emotions that we have as humans not in the moment like you said because when we're cops we got to stay focused control everybody else's emotions but at the end of our shift we should have some kind of armor down routine where we reflect on our calls 
and become more aware of our thinking and our feelings. And it doesn't mean you're a, a dork or a wimp for doing that because you are a human being. And we know for a fact that first responders unconsciously are strangling those feelings, numbing and distracting themselves with sex and booze and drugs and gambling and buying toys and working the OT and all of that stuff. And we are killing ourselves. Yeah. Well, and especially as you said, if when you enter law, law enforcement, EMS, fire, um, yeah, your, your goal is to make the world better. So that's that compassion, that kindness that's in you. So as you start going in, if, if you then are kind of tricked into believing that the trauma that we see won't affect you, then, then that's going against the very reason you even put the uniform on. And it's the same with the self-care. You know, if, if you, if you believe this facade, as we talked about before we start recording that, that Hollywood masculinity, the, the Rambos and the Terminators, that that's what a man is, then again, you, you're negating the entire other side of the yin yang. The, 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 the hard part is when we're running into a fire, you guys are running towards gunfire. And the soft part is the reason why you're running towards gunfire. So you have to give that same compassion to yourself as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, with, with the culturally uh, competent clinicians, um, a good friend of mine, Dustin Hawkins, just created a thing called Redline Rescue. Um, and it's a, it's a, a an app, but it's actually a website technically, but you can put in your location and they have started building a database of people that have been, um, uh, you know, reg registered and then gone through training to, to be, you know, from a counselor to an actually culturally competent counselor. How on your end, all the way on the, on the West Coast, when people ask you, how, how do you find some, some of the right counselors for the people that you, um, the people that reach out to you? Well, so I, one of the places I do peer support for is called Wounded Blue, and it's for injured and disabled cops, but an injury can be mental health. So we got all kinds of people that contact us. I also used to volunteer for Cop Line, which is not just a suicide line. I want everybody out there to know that Cop Line is, is a, it could be a crisis line, but it could be I've had people call and just vent about a call. They're frustrated about their performance. It's normalizing venting to your peers and getting th things off your chest. So both cop line, if somebody were to call cop line or somebody contacts Wounded Blue, both have their own databases of some therapist they vetted. So you can bring up their databases and hope that there's somebody in their area. And then if there's not, I'm blanking, but I think it's, I think it's called to protect and serve. This is another Christian-based nonprofit. And man, I, I want to find it and send it to you after this because it sounds like Redline Rescue. What I can do is, because I get contacted from people that don't live local to me, I deal with cops across the country, I can send their name, their zip code, their insurance plan, and a summary of what their issue is to this nonprofit. And they will get on the phone and call therapists in that person's hometown and try to find somebody that has some experience with first responders or veterans, takes their insurance, and has openings. And I, I'm... I think it's to serve and protect. But if you Google that, there's going to be a million things that come up. Um, so I use that. And then locally, if you're in Los Angeles, I happen to be very good friends with um, a police psychologist for one of the big brand name agencies out here, as well as a, another wonderful psychologist that is uh, contracted with 60 or 70 agencies in Los Angeles and Orange County. So depending on where somebody lives, 
I have police psychologists that I contact that are networked and I say, hey, do you know anybody that lives near them? And my one close friend who's also into sports psychology, because we haven't talked about it, but I have a background in sports psychology as well. I'm kind of a jack of all trades guy. We met through sports psychology before we knew we were both in the law enforcement field. And she's also a very devout Catholic. So she sees it as part as part of her faith to kind of help me. And she's typically 350 an hour. But if somebody lives near her, she will see, and they're referred through me, she'll see them for $100 an hour, which is expensive, but not in LA for a PhD, police and sports psychologist. So that's how I do my best to try to help people find a therapist. And then I always say, do not quit or stop going if you have a bad experience. Try two or three. But that's the scary thing is you get somebody to overcome the inertia to see a therapist. They have a bad experience and then they come back and they're like, dude, I'm not doing that again. So, yeah, I've heard several horror stories. You know, people have been in tears. The counselor, one person was even told to get out. They can't help them. So you imagine if someone's in crisis, I mean, that could be the last nail in the coffin for them. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. All right. Well, then one more area I want to touch on before we go to some closing questions. You gave us a great outlay of what you think um, an orientation should look like in law enforcement, you know, the academy side. Um, and I love that, you know, that that kind of the basic skills and then that compounding, um, you know, scenario day on the Friday with the mental health side in the academy. What would that look like to to educate our young men and women entering law enforcement to, and give them the tools for, you know, the self-care. So I don't know if you caught it, but in between the shooting, the DT and the PT, that's where you integrate things like yoga, Tai Chi, a gratitude journal. Also journaling the things like the bad calls, the calls that bother you, get it all out and then shred it or burn it in a ritual. Teach people what, Myself and uh, a mentor and colleague of mine that puts on retreats for first responders, Dr. John Becknell. He's the only guy I know that trains peer support teams in a very proactive manner. Um, We call it the armor down routine. At the end of your shift, and I won't go into it in detail because we could have a whole podcast about how to do an armor down routine, but at the end of your shift or at least once a week, you reflect on your calls and then become more aware of your, your thoughts about the call, your feelings about the call, and then look at how you responded or reacted, your behaviors and actions with those people and those situations, and, and just evaluate yourself. Am I living up to the highest ideals that I profess I believe in? So if they're, if they're religious, am I living up to my religious beliefs? Am I living up to my morals and my ethics and the principles that I say that are my truest self? when I am handling my call. So there's got to be reflection pieces and there are ways to teach people about these things. So giving lessons about paying attention to your thinking and your emotions on the job after, after your, after your shift. And like we said, maybe we have people come in and share their stories about going to therapy and they were, you know, they got help or maybe comes in, somebody comes in and does talks about their save a warrior experience. Although I don't want to overemphasize waiting until people are freaking, you know, in a really bad spot. And then they go to save a save a warrior or a treatment facility. I'd, I'd like to have some stories of people that 
worked through their challenges and didn't end up with three divorces and an alcoholic or a drug addict. But I do think that simple things like journaling, breath work, meditation, mindfulness, yoga, Tai Chi, Qigong, Capacitar, there's all kinds of different tools to teach people about stress management, self-regulation, and also how do you make meaning out of adversity and challenges. And they can't just be PowerPoints and lectures because information does not change us. The application of information in our lives changes us. So whether we're talking about mental health, we teach something and then we have somebody go through an exercise. Physical health, we we put you through it because you could look up all kinds of information on fitness and nutrition and still be totally out of shape. You got to apply that information. Absolutely. Well, one thing you just said for a moment, the armor down, um, what is the, what is your perspective of the value of, of pausing after every shift to get the responder out of responder mode and back into husband, wife, father, mother mode you know, before they walk back through the home? So I was never married with a family, but that is what the armored down routine is. So, and I could, you know, I had an armored down routine when I was a cop. And even at the most basic level, I challenge cops to drive home from their shift. As long as you're not on call for a specialty unit, turn off your cell phone, put it in the glove box, keep your radio off and drive home in complete silence. And either just be mindful of your surroundings or start reflecting on the call and do some breathing to physiologically calm yourself down. And then if you have an opportunity when you get home, and some people don't, so that's why the armor down routine, you might come home and be taking the kids to ball practice. Um, But at some point, can you stretch, foam roll, take a hot shower, do some breath work, do some meditation, do some journaling, do some prayer, and then do the reflection to become more aware of your thinking and your feelings on the calls and then your response and reaction on those calls. That's like the super generic armored down thing, but I think everybody should be doing that. And you should have a pause, you know, at least once a week where you say, hey, you know what, I'm going to go get a massage or go do a float tank. I'm going to go for a hike in nature. I'm going to go for a walk. Like not, not always hardcore physical fitness activity, just some silent time, time in nature, time where you turn off TV, radio, cell phones, all technology, and just silence, solitude, immersion in nature. Those are things where you should, you know, get some, some more calm in your life and some more grounding in your life. Beautiful. Well, it's great to hear. I mean, you know, we're talking about a football player and powerlifting, you know, SWAT team member talking about Qigong and journaling and breath work. And that's what we need to hear. You know, we're we're smashing the caricature of, you know, the manly man or the womanly woman, whoever wants to be uh, presented. But yeah, I mean, we are a whole person. And and like you said, with that psychology element, you obviously have a, a stronger perspective than a lot of us. But I see that in myself, you know, and I started doing it towards the end of my career. Just taking that thirty minutes to, to you know, to walk, to to row, even to sit on a rower and you know knock out two thousand meters at a slow distance or stretch, and it, it was huge, you know, because if I, you know, from that last place, in all honesty, the stress was more from the organization than the actual calls, um, but that's the thing too, you know, so you got to shake that off. Yeah, and you, I mean, if you don't know. People like Dr. John Becknell and Jeremy Wade, an amazing peer support leader in Seattle PD, 
they do surveys when they train agencies, peer support surveys, and there's different stress buckets and there's eight of them. And the, the traumatic calls and the action and the risks and the dangers that first responders take, although they can accumulate, you know, I feel like we all have this misery cup after listening to hundreds of stories of first responders. It's like, I thought that stuff during my childhood didn't bother me. I thought that stuff during combat didn't bother me. I thought these calls the last 15 years didn't bother me, but this call made it all come flooding back. So I feel like we have a misery cup and when it overflows, everything from our life that we haven't processed and dealt with comes back. So you have to learn to dump a little that misery cup out. Um, now I lost my point because I was getting on the misery cup thing. <laughs> well, we just, bring me back in? <laughs> we were just talking about, um, you know, again, the, the, the alpha, you know, talking about breath work and psychology and de-escalation, um, you know, so, oh, an organizational stress. I think that was the thing that I had. Oh, on. yes. Yeah. So the number one stress is poor leadership, not being backed by whether it's your city council, your county board of execs, your chief of police, your sheriff, um, the, the government bodies that oversee police departments, fire departments, or the leadership, the command staff, those are the biggest stressors. Okay, I can deal with the danger, the risk, and the traumas. And yes, they can accumulate and cause us problems, but the betrayal by people that are supposed to be supporting us is the biggest stress, not to be backed. And I can tell you right now, so many cops across America are dealing with the Ferguson effect, dehumanize, defund, demonize the police. They're going to back off and they're understaffed and underfunded. But shockingly, I have met some people in law enforcement that are still being really proactive, but their whole chain of command supports them. They feel like they can go do their job and they do it within the limits of the law. They're not going to be frivolous criticism, investigations, IA, or a threat to um, their next promotion or whatever, if that makes sense. So when you said that, I don't know if you know that, but there are people that have done surveys and absolutely poor leadership or poor management from a government body is like the biggest stress in the first responder's life. Yeah, well, I can testify. (laughs) Observational (laughs) evidence. All right. Well, Matt, it's been a great conversation. I just want to transfer to some uh, closing questions if you have time. Yeah, I have time. Yeah. Beautiful. All right. Well, then the first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend or books? Um, they can be related to what we've discussed or completely unrelated. I probably have a thousand books in this little apartment. And when I give book recommendations, I tend to like to do them on an individual basis after I get to know somebody. And like if I were getting to know somebody, oftentimes a book title will pop in my head. Um, so it's hard for me to, to do that. But if you're a police officer and you have not seen Dave Grossman or Tony Blauer or Kevin Gilmartin in person, I would highly suggest making that something to do on your career and invest in. And I would highly suggest reading all of Grossman's books or at least on combat. And it's big, but I mean, there's so much valuable information. Tony Blauer doesn't have a book yet. He may, he has tons of PDFs but I would chew up every podcast or bit of information you can find online uh, articles that he has written and stuff, learn more about the spear system and definitely read Kevin Gilmartin's book, you know, emotional survival for law enforcement and try to implement that stuff in your life. And Dr. Paul Whitesell doesn't have a book, um, but I think he's like just one all around 
potent stud too that's an alpha male that understands psychology and taking care of yourself as well beautiful what about uh, a movie and or documentary i'm blanking yeah i'm not a, and actually i didn't own a tv or watch anything my entire police career so i'm maybe not even the guy for that and if i if I did anything, I would buy DVDs of like Into Great Silence, which is like a three-hour documentary about a monastery in France, and it's pretty much all silent, and you see what the monks do. So they would probably be really boring for most first responders to want to watch these like contemplative meditation-type uh, documentaries that I used to watch when I was a cop. But yeah. What was that one called again? So I'll put it down it's on, on the show notes. The documentary? Yes. I think it's called Integrate Silence. All right. And just for everyone listening, Tony Blauer was on episode 57 of this podcast. Dave Grossman was episode 27 and 99. So they, they have three to listen to right off the bat for free. Excellent. All right. Excellent. Well, then the next question, is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Well, we talked about Jay Smith of Fit Force. Yep. I would get Dr. John Becknell. He's an organizational depth psychologist that is a former flight paramedic. So he's done the job and now he trains peer support across the country, primarily fire and paramedic organizations. So you two would be able to hit it off, but I keep trying to drag him more into the police world because he teaches a lot of the proactive upstream, let's give swimming lessons on how to deal with adversity and trauma and poor leadership and how can you keep living well and becoming a better human being because you're a cop, a firefighter or a medic rather than experience, you know, breakdown, sarcasm, negativity, uh, and bitterness. So Dr. John Becknell, Jay Smith. And since I talked about Kevin Gilmartin, if you have not spoken to him, I think he's former Marine, former state trooper turned psychologist. So He's a clinical psych guy that gets the warrior stuff as well and great personality. Beautiful. I think he's been uh, recommended before, but I'll definitely take it as a sign to, to pull the trigger on that one. And then Jay and uh, John are new names for me. So thank you so much for all of those. All right. Well, Paul Whitesell too. If, he's, if, if you could get him, Dr. Paul Whitesell. And the last he, I knew, he was the, Indi the superintendent of the Indiana State Police veteran law enforcement psychologist brilliant and how do you spell his last name w-h-i-t-e-s-e-l-l -E 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 or c-e-l-l -L. okay perfect i will look him up as well thank you so and much a martial artist so you guys could talk about martial arts too perfect perfect all right well then the very last question before we make sure people know where to find you what do you do to decompress uh, so every day I go to the gym, every day I meditate for 30 minutes to an hour. I used to do a lot more. COVID changed it up. Every day I read for at least a half hour and I try to do a little journaling. Um, and before COVID hit, I tried to do two or three yoga classes a week. I walked on the beach a couple nights a week. Um, I used to go to spiritual direction almost every week, which it's hard to explain what spiritual direction is, but I usually find priests that are also trained in therapy and depth psychology. I go to therapy. Uh, so I, I go to therapy. I used to go to spiritual direction every week, but it, we haven't done it because of COVID. 
Once a month, I used to go to Jim Finley, who's a famous former monk under Thomas Merton and a trauma psychologist in Santa Monica that would run like a contemplative meditation group and kind of a, a wisdom or a Dharma talk. I used to go on maybe one Saturday a month, I would go to like a half day spirituality type retreat or meditation group. Loyola Marymount used to hold them. Insight LA has different workshops. UCLA has the Mindfulness Awareness Research Center. Um, so yeah, I used to do more yoga, different types of meditation and contemplative prayer groups, Taze services once a month in Beverly Hills at All Saints ended because of COVID, but a beautiful contemplative Christian service. They also have a good one in PV, um, but again, COVID ended all of those. So I'm high maintenance with the self-care, the, uh, you know, massages, cupping, acupuncture. Uh, unfortunately, COVID shut down the cryotherapy, but I used to get cryotherapy for free. So I did it before and after every workout and then did an hour in the float tank. Um, but all of that went away with COVID. So I'm a high maintenance guy. I'm into all this stuff and I'm always looking at ways to tweak my intellectual, physical, emotional, and spiritual life and, and try to get better and work on my faults and learn lessons from the things that I struggle at. Yeah, it's, it's so sad to hear as well that because of COVID, so many of those positive coping mechanisms and those air, you know, positive tribes were taken away from people. So I think sadly, you know, there's so much that we can do ourselves and there's lots of people that have come out of this year better, you know, because that dynamic has worked for them. But I think, you know, there's there's going to be a ripple effects of some of those people that needed those groups to, you know, to, to grow that I feel probably are going to be worse off after this year. Yeah, I hope I'm not worse off, but I'm, I'm a pretty introverted guy. So there's a real powerful community aspect to yoga and meditation and contemplative prayer groups, even if you're not interacting, like you go on a five, eight or a 10 day retreat and silence with people, you bond with them, even though you're not talking. And even if you go once a month to a mindfulness or a meditation group, even if you're not hanging out and socializing with those people, there's a deep, deep, beautiful connection and a nourishing of at least my, my mind and my heart and my spirit. So it's, it's really hurt. And of course, churches have been shut down too. So uh, yeah, kind of crazy because, you know, community is the number one aspect in our healing and our well-being. Somebody that has a strong community will live longer than an isolated person that eats healthy and works out and gets a lot of sleep. Did you know that? Oh, I, I don't doubt it for a second. I had uh, Sebastian Junger on. Have you read his book, Tribe? Absolutely. I suggest that book to everyone. And yeah. I... It, that relates to the first responder professions as well. Yes, yes. Absolutely. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much. I mean, you have such an interesting perspective, you know, very, very different than a lot of the other law enforcement people I've had on. And every, each and every one, obviously, is different for a different reason. But, you know, your the depth that you have in, when it comes to psychology and meditation and yoga and, you know, the, the soft arts, if that's what they call them, um, you know, is a very powerful perspective when you're listening to a SWAT operator and a, and a powerlifter and a football player. So um, I'm sure people are going to want to learn more about you or reach out to you. Where are the best places to find you online? Um, so on Instagram, I'm thin blue line spirituality. So thin blue line spirituality. And I'm, I'm not into social media. The cops I work with told me I had to get on. So 
You can reach me through there. You can email me at Matt, M-A-T-T, period, Domiancic, D-O-M-Y-A-N-C-I-C, at globalassociates.org, Matt, period, Domiancic, at globalassociates.org. And again, I'm not good at technology and it's not up yet, but we have bought the web domain tacticalchaplain.com. So tacticalchaplain.com. Um, I'm having people try to help me because I can't afford to pay anybody. I hope to get that up and start blogging on mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual aspects of being a first responder, as well as talking about fitness, fighting, shooting, scenario training, stress management, sleep, nutrition, all of that stuff. Beautiful. Well, just a suggestion. I The website for this podcast, I used Squarespace to create it. And I did it on my own. It's kind of like click and drag or whatever they call it. Um, but I found a YouTube video of a guy teaching his eight-year-old son how to do it. <laughs> so I found that <laughs> education level for me. So if, if you end up kind of trying to struggle through on your own, Squarespace is a really good one. I think my friend did build a generic platform on that. So that I think I'm positive. Yeah. I have a friend that, that did it on there. So we just need to go over some final edits, get it up and have her teach me how to enter like the blogs on there. Yeah, it's it's pretty pretty simple. They did a hell of a job making it, you know, police and fireproof. So, <laughs> well, Matt, awesome. I, I just want to say thank you. It's been a great conversation. You know, every single person I get on has a different perspective, and you know, your your perspective, as we we touched on before we started recording, you know, it wasn't one of of being in a deep dark place with a gun in your mouth, and we've had many many stories like that. But you can tell now there's a reason why you were able to get out some of those darker places that you touched on because you had a grasp of sleep, of mental, uh, mindful practice, of yoga, um, you know, and some of these these positive outliers, uh, excuse me, positive uh, coping mechanisms that kept you from the bottom. And that's kind of the same way as we discussed, I found, you know, I never got to that dark, dark, dark place. So it's very important that people hear that too. You know, we got a lot of, a lot of very, very powerful stories of people that were in the absolute depths, but there's other people that are in a couple of tiers above that we need to hear, well, what worked for you? You know, what kept you out of there? You know, what is partly childhood, mm -hmm. partly, you know, what we do now. So I truly appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your story today. I Man, I love talking to you, and I appreciate it as well. And I want everybody to know, we didn't touch on it. I have not had the perfect life. Like I've had, I have had dark places through injuries, medical problems, battles with work comp, and early medical retirement. So I've struggled with, you know, difficult times. But thank God I had tools and resources and habits that helped me get through them. And I also had no stigma with reaching out for help, but I've definitely struggled, my friend, <laughs> but it made me a better person. Absolutely. But I think, like I said, that's an important thing though. You know, that it, as you said, the proactive side and being an environment where you found yourself immersed in around the right people and, and there wasn't that stigma. You didn't feel like you had to shut up and hide it. Otherwise you as P-U-S-S-Y, as you said, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, that's the chaplain talking for everyone out there, not the, the police officer. <laughs> um, no, but it is, it's, it's very important to hear. So thank you so much for telling the story today. Thank you, my friend. Really appreciate it.